Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. How extraordinary. People. You know, I'm from Melbourne, so give me a moment. I just want to soak this up. Um, my name's Jonathan Green. I'm, I'm on Radio National. I edit a magazine called Meangin, and if I can be permitted a little bit of sort of um, infor infomercial at this point. Uh, Meangin publishes about 250 authors a year, all of whom are paid. Um, and the way we do that is, yes, <laughs> Australian writers getting money. Who knew? Uh, the way that we do that is that people subscribe to the magazine. If, if you did that, you're kind of like your own little Australia Council. <laughs> it goes to, those, goes to those 250 people. We, at some point this evening, I suspect, we'll be talking a little bit about the 16th century. Um, now, that makes us think about history, it makes us think about the passage of time, and it makes us think about the deep time in which the traditional owners of this land have occupied this place. Put 500 years against 60,000 years, 70,000 years. Put that against the 230 years, 233 years since colonists arrived in this place in the land of the Gadigal people of the Eurora nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And note that this is unceded land and that the story of this place is unfinished and unhealed. Um, that there is much to be done, much truth to be told. Hilary Mantel, Dame Hilary Mantel, um, will sh shortly appear here like great and powerful Oz, and I shall <laughs> lower myself before her. <laughs> Wolf Hall was her tenth novel, her twelfth book. She is a writer of, of great productivity and extraordinary brilliance. She is a writer of of easeful, graceful prose. Wolf Hall, of course, the first of two Man Booker Prizes, um, the second in the, the trilogy that I'm sure we will discuss uh, at some length this evening. Another Man Booker Prize. If, if you want to read perhaps the best volume uh, of memoir extant, I, I, I commend to you um, giving up the ghost, James Hillary's own memoir. And of course, mantel pieces. Mantel pieces. How do you say that? We should ask. Ladies and gentlemen, she cannot sadly be with us in the flesh, but she is going to join us on screen, Dame Hilary Mantel. <laughs> Dame Hilary, good morning to you. Uh, Good morning. It is morning here with me. A lovely English spring morning, beautiful and fresh, and evening with you, I think. It is. Can I begin by observing that you write an extraordinary decapitation? <laughs> well, do you know, I've had plenty of practice, because <laughs> the first book I ever wrote... Oh, though not the first I published, was about the French Revolution. And almost all of my characters ended up with Dr. Guillotine's beheading machine. So go figure. Um, <laughs> by the time I came to write about the Judas, this was, oh, a mere nothing. You oh. know, just a few dozen a year. 
<laughs> it's not a mere nothing at all, though, because in that moment uh, when, when Thomas Cromwell loses his life, I'm sorry, spoiler here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this goes to the nature of what propels historic fiction, historic literature. Um, is that yeah, we know the outcome here, we, we know how the arc of this story will resolve, and yet it is the feeling of that moment, it is the sense of that moment. And in this particular execution, the sense of that moment is so sharp and so clear. You must have put yourself into that head <laughs> to feel that blade. Well, traditionally, you know, what we know... Um, think we know is that Cromwell's execution was rather bundled and he would have had time to know he was dying. So horrible though that may have been for my character, that is an opportunity for the novelist. It isn't a sudden <laughs> cut, jump cut to black. It's that your character feels their life ebbing. So it's a chance to have the novel fade from the page rather than that feeling of not really knowing the end. You, you, you know, Cromwell himself, he may have a glimpse of his next life <laughs> if that's the way you read it. But we have been with him from the time he was a boy of 15, right to those closing seconds. When you began this enterprise, and it's, it was a 10-year enterprise, the writing of these three books. 15, really. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm half as impressed again. <laughs> well, I began 2005, I would say. Um, and, of course, didn't publish till 2010. And during that first five years, a lot of the groundwork was laid for the later, later novels. 2009, I'm sorry, um, Wolf Hall came out. Was Cromwell always going to be the, the heart of this? Yes. It wasn't that I wanted to write about the Tudors. It was that I wanted to write about this extraordinary man. Uh, there have been shelves full, libraries full of novels about the Tudors. But this was the part of the story that I felt was underimagined. And I felt that if you put Cromwell at the centre of a narrative, everything that was so familiar changed. It, mm. it all spun and it defamiliarised. So it was a new look at an era where many people have been before me. You're sort of like a Tudor Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I suppose you could say that. <laughs> which, which makes me wonder what it is about characters in, in that position of, of being adjacent to power and, and, and a tremendous influence that is so fascinating. What you wonder about Cromwell is how do you get up in the morning, put your clothes on and go off and face Henry VIII, the most capricious and unpredictable of men. Ah, uh, and keep buoyant, because what 
Cromwell says in my book is that uh, he needs me to keep cheerful and he needs me to keep steady because he's usually neither of those things. I think also, you know, what fascinates me about Cromwell is the trajectory. It's obscurity to the second man in the land. Yes, and, and I mean that as as a as a novelist in this history, that gives you that gives you a freedom, that gives you the, the, the capacity to imagine this life. Certainly his early life, mostly off the record, mm. just little hints here and there. And then slowly you see him taking shape. Um, he's already in early middle age, but you see him on the horizon as Wolsey's advisor and then coming closer and closer into focus as he steps into power. But, you know, he's one of those people who rises without trace. And then suddenly there he is right at Henry's shoulder. Was it important for you to, to keep him being, because he's, he's a man of light and shade, to keep him being in a character with whom the reader could still have affection despite his schemings, uh, the, the things that he brought into the lives of other people, the, the darkness of his character? Was it important to keep him likeable? I think he was likeable. He... It cuts against the traditional historical picture, but he wasn't an austere person at all. He was rather dryly humorous, it seems, and he was warm. He had a charisma. And he needed this because he had nothing but personal magnetism to pull people in his train. He didn't come from a great family. He didn't have a name that everyone would rally around. It was all done by the force of his personality. And what I hope is that by introducing him to the reader when he's a boy, the reader, I hope, makes that identification in the first couple of paragraphs of Wolf Hall and thereafter sticks close by his side and almost walks in his shoes. I always wanted the reader to be, be saying, well, if I were Cromwell, what would I do now? <laughs> I mean, it is to stick close to his shoes from, from, from boyhood to death. It, it, it's a long haul <laughs> through the three volumes. I think that is what I began to realise as I worked away over the years, that when you take all the complexity away, this is just a life. Hmm. It's a man's life. And that's what gives the story a certain universality. I think the thing that arrested people in, in Wolf Hall was the sense of sort of modernity about their considerations. You know, the inner life was recognisable in your characters. And, I mean, Cromwell was a figure of, an important figure in, in introducing that sort of sense of the modern to an England of the Middle Ages. So he's a sort of a modern presence. But that way you conjure a recognisable inner world is an interesting thing. 
in, in many ways, they're very different from us. And I, particularly in their active religious faith, which matters mm. to them every day. And I never try to minimize that difference because I, th I think that's what's so intriguing. But on the other hand, with Cromwell, you've got a figure that could almost belong to any era because he's cutting through convention, he's cutting through all the pieties. Uh, he, he's carving his own path out. And that makes him very recognisable to us, I think. But you're not a writer who, who burdens the historical character with, you know, archaic forms of speech. The detail to conjure the moment is, it doesn't obstruct our view of that sort of inner world in your writing. It's one of the tremendous gifts in the books, I think, is that it's not a, an elaborate Baroque representation of the period, and yet it feels so resoundingly there. How do you, how do you, how do you strike that balance? Slowly, slowly. Um, <laughs> Over 15 years. <laughs> you, get, you get your ear in, as it were, um, by reading uh, the prose of the time. And, of course, if I were to reproduce it, it will be incomprehensible to the modern reader. What I try to do is get just a flavour of Tudor speech, the odd word that we don't use anymore, but which is understandable from context, uh, the odd little twist on normal syntax. So y you've just got that little... Suspicion of another world there. But I think the important thing is not to hold up the flow of the reader's comprehension. You, you don't want period detail or period dialogue to be a burden. You don't want it to be an obstacle. You want the experience to be free-flowing. And I, like, I write a lot of dialogue. And, of course, the paradox is... We have no idea how the early Tudors really spoke to each other. But the one thing you have going for you is that all my characters write a lot of letters. Uh, this is all we have left of them in many cases, their letters. And often um, a, a, a letter is dictated to a clerk. So you are mm. actually hearing the person's mm. voice. And Cromwell's interesting because some very unfamiliar words sometimes make themselves into his letters. And you think, now, what's going on here? And you get the idea that he's just in the next room. He's been with another set of people to whom he's been speaking French. And he's, he's slightly washed over. And then he comes in and he dictates a letter in English. And you get these quirky, odd little phrases. When something like that happens, you're really in the moment with your character. Mm. And you become conscious that the historical record, let's say a letter, it isn't just words on the paper. It's also the blots the bits missing, the elisions. It's a question of, is the clerk getting it accurately? And the man who's speaking, 
What kind of mood is he in? Is he telling the truth in this letter? Is he telling the whole truth? And what you take to be the historical record suddenly becomes conditional and it's in flux, as if everything is to play for all over again. You've mentioned sound quite a few times in describing that process. I'm wondering how the, how the characters come to you, how they, how they sound in your mind, and is that an important thing? I think rather than uh, sound or visually, they come to me as an energy. Sometimes I don't have a very clear picture of a character, but that's because to me they're always in motion. Uh, they're always in process. It's in the same way um, when you think of somebody you know really well, a friend or member of your family, when you think of them, you, you don't necessarily picture uh, their ears, their hands, their hair. You don't think of them in that way. You think of them as an energy, as a force. And, you know, this is why we often, when we describe our loved ones, we, we often describe them as they were 20 years ago, because that's what they mean <laughs> to us. Um, these people are embedded within my life, like friends, like neighbours. I don't have to scrutinise them to know who's just come into the room. I feel it. You, I mean, you're a woman who's, who's very um, alive to the possibility of supernatural presence. Yes. I, 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 I think of them as still in process, as, OK, they're dead, but not quite so dead as they might be. <laughs> well, what are they doing now? <laughs> Henry and, and Thomas and, and the crew. <laughs> I wonder. The other thing you mentioned there too was the, the, the blots, the, the gaps in that written record, and that's your space. That is where you can suggest the possibilities. This is you know, mm. where you bring narrative tension, where you bring narrative possibility. That's where the novelist goes to work, between the lines. And those bits that have vanished from the record, or that perhaps never were on the record, the things mm. that are never spoken aloud, the, the phrases that are never exactly formulated, that stay within the characters' heads, that's where the novelist operates. It's really where the historian has to say, the door is closed on me, but the novelist can, as it were, sneak under the door and through the cracks. You've written, I mean, you refer to this as setting the dead free, I think, which is, which is a yes, tremendous phrase. They have become trapped within the pages of history books and their lives divided into chapters. And I'm very conscious of the falsity of this to lived experience because if you read a history of the period, then 
historians organize their narrative as best they may. And you'd always find, for example, May 1536, execution of Anne Boleyn. Anne dies, you have a full stop, you turn the page, new chapter, we're on to the next wife. But that's not how it feels in real life. Um, and in, in my third book, In the Mirror and the Light, the what you might refer to as the mopping up operations from <laughs> Anne Boleyn. They are never finished. Um, it, the consequences roll on through the summer of 1536 and on and on. And when you realise that, to them it's not as if Anne's dead, it's more or less as if she's gone into the next room. And it actually changes what you believe about the course of history if you think of experience as a continuity or rather than divided up into section and chap mm. sections and chapters. Because that, that experience as it would have been lived, it's not determined by the knowledge that we now have, it, have of it as history. I mean, that experience as it was lived is full of all the possibilities of life. That's, that's precisely... Right. I mean, when, when Anne was um, arrested, certain gentlemen were arrested with her. Mm. Some of them were let go. Some of them were executed. Uh, and who knows how far this will go? Will other people be arrested? Will this plot roll on? Will there be other executions? Cromwell knows, but nobody else does. And he's not saying, he's holding people in terror by the fact that they don't know the ramifications. And this is how he controls the months after Anne's death. Yeah, we know where it ended, but they don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. And I guess that's what I mean as well, mm. by setting the dead free. It's as if we're doing a rerun now, and to them it's not predetermined. Yes, but, but there must be, there must be for the novelist in this space, uh, again, a balance here. Um, you, you don't want to run away too far from the history. This has to be no, sort of a recognisable account. Those, those are your guidelines, and I never, I never cheat. Um, I, I do my work to know the record, to question the record, to look at it suspiciously, identify the gaps. But the shape of history of real events is often so awkward. It's not the way you'd like it to be. Mm. But you have to work with that. Otherwise, there's no point, to my mind, in, in doing this kind of work you should write a novel purely from your imagination. So it's best not to think of the facts as constraints, but the facts are what give the book its bedrock, its strength. You do both, of course, you know, from, from history and from, and from your own inner, inner, inner life, your own imagination. The difference in process, how does, how, what is the difference in feeling in, in the writing process for those two forms? 
from for memoir and the novel, or or oh from contemporary or historical novel. Yes. Well, um, the, well for, yeah, the two forms of novel, I think. To me, actually, it feels just the same, um, except the research component is obviously a big part of the historical novel, but it's, it's not a separate part for me. Mm. It's um, a specialised form of remembering. So just as you cast back on your own life when you're writing a memoir, uh, you cast back on other people's lives in writing a historical novel. But I can't follow the system whereby you do your research and then you begin your writing. For me, it's a rolling process. Uh, and the research goes on as long as the writing goes on. So it's a pretty seamless experience, really. And if you're talking about how it goes every day, then I think it's very much the same as writing a contemporary novel. Every day you think, well, will I be able to do it? Can I do anything but plot, subject, verb, object? Sometimes that's all you can do. But in either case, contemporary or historical fiction, you're waiting for something to ignite in your imagination on that particular writing day. I suppose the thing about historical fiction is if you're really having one of those bad days when writing feels like stretching treacle, <laughs> uh, you, you've always got, uh, you know, things you can be doing. You can go and uh, reorder your card index or you can do a bit of storyboarding or a bit of fact-checking. So... It's all consuming. It, 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 you can be very busy about a historical novel. There's no need to sit around waiting mm. for conditions in mm. your head to become mm. right. Th that, that process of having the, you know, the research and the writing being a thing of joined in the one place, does, does that ever catch you out from, you know, from behind? Are you, are you ever in the, you know, a particular train of thought on something, a character or a series of events, and then research suggests that perhaps that's not the way things might have been subsequently? Do you ever have to unpick? I don't think that would happen because you've always got the outline in, in your head. Actually, working out what happened, establishing the facts, that's the easy bit. Um, the kind of research that rolls on is um, it's more contextual. Mm -hmm. It's more the background of ordinary life. Um, and you're reading, well, I am anyway picking through the record day by day so that when I, um, when I come to write a certain scene, say, it's the 1st of October, 1539. A day or so before I'm going to write that scene, I'll have established where Cromwell is, if it's something we can know, and what else is going on in his life that I'm not even going to mention in that scene. Uh, I want to know what letters have crossed his desk. Is he dealing with Scotland, with France, with the Holy Roman Emperor? What's happening 
foreign and domestic, so that I can make some guesses to what's at the top surface of his mind, mm. what's going on beneath. That's the kind of thing I keep to the last minute. Um, is he with the king? Is he up country? How far out of London is he? I check those things at the last minute, but probably from my own card index that I'd have worked up beforehand. So it's more or less a question of bringing everything to the surface of your mind so that it's there for you when you write the scene. The reader's not necessarily going to know, but you can bury it in the scene at the deepest level. That sort of depth of understanding of, of someone's psychology in a moment that you're about to write, for, for, for how many characters can you apply that? How, how far down the batting order does that sort of sense of empathy go? I think in its purest form that just applies to Cromwell because everything spins mm. around his consciousness mm. and we're always, as it were, on his shoulder and looking through his eyes. Um, but as a matter of fact, you want to know where all your major characters are because, you know, you may need one of them to walk in. <laughs> and you need, to know he's not in, you need to know he's not in Scotland or Palais. <laughs> and, of course, you always need to know where the king is. Hmm. You don't take your eye off Henry VIII. Well, yes, that, that could have appalling consequences. You, you, you talked there about, you know, that, that thing of, of looking over Cromwell's shoulder. And, of course, it is, it is the voice in these books uh, it's been described as an emphatic third person. That, that, yeah. the, the sense of him and, and the way in which he views the world, the, the decision about how to, how to phrase that, how to, how to select voice for these books, was that a hard one? You know, it all arrived in the first minute of writing. I didn't know how it was well, going to be. that's easy then. <laughs> um, you know, it's often the case that all the important things about a book, you work out in a split second. And the moment you write that first paragraph, a lot of decisions are taken. You might not have taken them consciously, but I think, you know, I've been thinking about Cromwell's story for many, many years before I tried to commit it to paper. But well, when I wrote those first paragraphs, you've got the boy of 15. We don't know his name at this stage. He's lying on the ground and his father is standing over him and he's kicking him and he's shouting at him. And all the boy can hear is the voice in the air and he can see his father's boot and he can see, he can feel his face against the cobblestones mm. and he can see his own blood you're in intense close-up so as soon as I saw that and as it were experienced that then the big decisions were taken where are we we're behind Cromwell's eyes when is it it's now it's cinematic and it's close focus. Um, we are so nearly in 
the body that's being described. So there I had it, the close third person, the present tense, and then the whole trilogy unfolds more or less in the present tense. We, we stay with that consciousness. Um, I didn't, I'm not conscious of when I took that decision. I just saw it. It must leave a tremendous hole in your life. I think Cromwell and I will be working together for quite a while yet. Oh, what's next? <laughs> well, he's not going to get up from the scaffold, you know, with one mighty bound, he was free. Um, we're not going to do that. But next is the stage play. There will be a TV series. Uh, but this last year, I've been working on the stage adaptation. Um, I've been doing this in collaboration with Ben Miles, who is going to play Thomas Cromwell, who played Thomas Cromwell in the adaptations of the first two books. Yes. And has also read the audio books. I think Ben knows them better than I do. So we've been working on the play, and of course, we imagined we'd be doing this in a room together, uh, and we'd get through so quickly because it's like, uh, Ben, you be Henry, I'll be Cromwell, then we'll switch. Okay, now you be Anne of Cleves, and so on. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, thanks to the year that we've all passed, mm. We've had to more or less write the whole play by email. We've managed one meeting and a few Zoom calls. Uh, and it's been the strangest process. But because we have worked together closely before, and I've got Ben's voice in my head alongside Cromwell's, uh, we've got through, we've got a coherent version. We're ready to go and if, Circumstances permit, we'll open the show this autumn. And this, this is yet to be announced, so this is a, a, a little uh, scoop yeah, for the audience I, here I, I, have to be, I have to be a little bit careful here and not presume too much, but I, I hope that within a few weeks we will have a firm announcement. Tremendously exciting. Does that... The adaptations and, and the, the earlier Wolf Hall TV series and, of course, theatres, I mean, they, they are superb. Is that a, a significantly different space? Can you make that jump? I think when I write, I've always got a text that's trying to be something else. Sometimes it's trying to be a film, sometimes mm. it's trying to be a stage play. But every scene you write, you're conscious of its potential to move in other directions and exist in other media. And I write such a lot of dialogue. I think <laughs> it's, it's obvious I'm trying to be a playwright, but it's just on the page. I'm this megalomaniac playwright who brings the audience in for 500 hours. <laughs> Uh, and Nobody then, leaves. what have you got? <laughs> you know, you've got two hours. But I think it's best, really, not to think of them as adaptations, but as 
the story told mm. by other means. Mm. Now, with the, um, with the first two plays, it's, the adaptation was done by Mike Poulton, a very experienced dramatist, with a lot of input from me, which grew as the plays evolved. But this time it's different because I'm in charge of telling the story my own way. Um, if I want to put in a scene that doesn't exist in the book, I can do that. I can write that scene. And I'm not giving any secrets away by saying that's exactly what I do. <laughs> um, you, you know, you're thinking of it as a new work and it's a fresh mm. chance. Mm. It's, it's a highly creative process. The wonderful thing is it involves teamwork. And after this lonely year, that will be a great thing. Can I take you back to voice and, and, and to the, your memoir, Giving Up the Ghost? Sure. Which is superbly constructed. And, it, I mean, it, it, some of the things that we've talked about, about how we, we, we see the present, how we, you know, the, the nature of memory, the nature of recall. Tell us about how you, you decided to sort of construct that book because it is the sort of the glimmerings of things that we as, as young people, we don't remember the sort of the full account, but we have these flashes of moments and you managed to capture that in the written form, which is, you know, such a, such a tremendous thing. I think giving off up the ghost started off as a kind of accidental project. Um, I'll tell you how it started as, as a list. Um, after my stepfather died, well, you know what happens when there's a big death in a family? Uh, the floor tilts and everyone comes to rest in a slightly different place. Mm. It precipitated moving house in my family. Oh, we, we, we had a cottage in Norfolk, which we bought to be close to my mother and stepfather. Then he died, and it seemed time to sell the cottage. And I was kind of upset about this. I knew I was going to be homesick for it. So I decided that as I moved my possessions out of it, and as I gave away things or rehomed them, I was just going to list what they were. Every item would evoke something to me in the years to come. So it was a piece of private writing. But a list is also a story. And my family stories began to emerge, as it were, from these objects. And then I realised I was actually writing not a list but a memoir. Hmm. And I go back to my earliest memoirs and tell it more or less cinematically in flashes. There are huge gaps there. My teenage years, I got over in a paragraph or two. I didn't feel that was material I could handle in that book. So it really began to constellate around a theme of children and childlessness mm one's own childhood, and then the children one might have had, but in my case, I don't. And I wonder about that, and, and you know, because that, of course, you know, the, the female reproductive capacity, 
a woman's body is, is so much a part of the Tudor history, of Henry's history, the fixation on reproduction and the male heir, the, the sort of the, the, the point of contact there with you, your own experience of, of childlessness. Does that, does that give you a, a, a certain feel for that moment, for that, you know, the things that were happening there? Well, it means I know... Um it means I know a great deal of um, amateur gynaecology, as you might describe <laughs> it. Um, but I don't relate to the Tudor women in that way. Um, and if I have felt the pull of that story strongly, then obviously I would have written it from the female point of view. Yeah. But the um, the difficulty that... Henry's wives have all in different ways is none of them have difficulty becoming pregnant. They have difficulty producing a live child or a child that stays alive or a child of the right sex at the right time. So it's complicated. And I don't really think of that as relating to my own experience, except, as I say, it gives me a certain... Um, certain factual background. Uh, I suppose I think more about Henry as as a man, as he 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 may be one of these men who doesn't really feel grown up till he's got a son of his own, and we do we do think of it very much from the king's point of view. I think through mm. the books, his. His having a son is not a vanity project either. It's not a personal project. It's about the security of the realm, about keeping England safe. Uh, no one thought at that time that a woman would be a successful ruler. How did you feel when Prince Philip died? He'd had a good innings. I don't <laughs> see anything. <laughs> you know, I'm... Um, a life of 99 years, almost making it to 100, cause for celebration, if anything. Um, strange how he became a kind of martyr in the days after his death, a martyr to duty. But uh, I would say that after a rocky beginning, he had a pretty nice life. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it of course, you know, brings up the, the conversation about the modern royal family and, and their place culturally. You've had observations to make here in particular about the, the royal women, um, which were, were famously, uh, famously taken up. I got into a lot of trouble. You did. Uh, you did. <laughs> by people pulling one or two sentences out of context, you know, complex speech, which was later published, what I did, I think, was not offend the royal family. I offended the press. Mm. I offended the media by telling them not to behave like brutes and to back off and not to treat Kate Middleton as they had treated Diana. My plea was to remember that royal people, for all their refinement and elevation, live in animal bodies just like you and me and that they have their personal vulnerability 
just like all of us, and not to treat them like objects. Of course, it was seen as criticism of the royal family because I was talking about Kate's image as a, a good girl who might almost be a puppy dancing on other mm. people's strings. I, it wasn't... Um, it was an observation. It wasn't personal criticism. That didn't stop elements of the press getting hold of it and uh, camping out outside my, my doorstep. I tell you, it was comic, really, because when they came along, they came along with a defective brief. So they knew where I live vaguely, but they didn't know precisely. <laughs> so they were asking my neighbours where I lived, and any, any sort of fat little middle-aged woman who came along the street, they were running after her, shouting, Are you Hillary? <laughs> we just drew the blinds and we let it go away. I don't look at social media... Uh, so every so often, my husband would come in and say, oh, the Prime Minister's making a comment about you. <laughs> and, oh, you know, now the leader of the opposition is in it. And it was all, you know, it was a ridiculous fuss. But you say the slightest thing about the royals, everyone jumps on you. You said in that, in that, in that speech that, that Harry doesn't know which he is, person or prince. Do you think he's, he's worked that out? I, th I think that's going to dog him for the rest of his life. I mean, he's... Mm. Uh, the question is, having been royal, can you become unroyal by an act of will? And by, you have to commit a terrific act of imagination to unroyal yourself. So I think he's going to be bound to his family of origin for the rest of his life. I, I, was it, I was trying to imagine it, his, his sort of inner thoughts at the, at the funeral of his grandfather and you, you saw him there, you know, having the last sort of public thing was Oprah and there he is at Philip's funeral and the sort of the juxtaposition of those two worlds are so Yeah, yeah they're, they're two incredibly different worlds. But, you know, as people have tirelessly said over the last 20 years or so, royalty and show business have drawn very close together. But I'm sure if you are a member of the royal family, that's not how it feels to you. I don't think the Queen <laughs> thinks she's in show business. No. <laughs> I wonder about the nature of the show if she does. <laughs> I think this is an interesting point. Do you think that the royal family is, is perhaps saved by that? Uh, the, the fact that it becomes theatrical. I mean, you, you describe them as pandas. Um, oh, well, I, yeah, I said in my speech that they were a bit like pandas because they were very expensive to keep. <laughs> and sometimes, though not recently, they have difficulty in breeding. Um, but we love to look at them. Oh, we do. They're not. <laughs> but, but we can't help going, oh, look. Um, and uh, I feel, though, on a personal level, for anyone who's an exhibit, um, because 
We're looking at them, and they know we are. I wonder if they, you know, if, if they hark back. I wonder if, uh, if the Queen in her cups, um, you know, thinks perhaps of Henry. I think um, that um, might be treason. But <laughs> <laughs> imagining her in her cups. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that was more the Queen Mother, in all honesty. Yes. <laughs> um, does she look back? I, I've no idea what sense of history she has. Mm. I would think her connection to the days of the Tudors is about as remote as ours is, quite frankly. Uh, it's a very Hanoverian, a very Germanic ancestry. You don't see the, the direct connection there. And yet, they're walking around the same spaces. Mm. The royal palaces. You said, Philip, long innings. And I, yeah. I must admit, with, with my feeling when he died was, as you know, someone, he, he has been a presence my entire life. And exactly, yes. As has I mean, his, his, his wife. I've known no other queen. Mm. Um, I was just born within the queen's reign. And, uh, you know, our whole generation is going to feel that amazing dislocation when, when the queen dies. Yes, regardless of what we think about the institution. But, but yes, exactly, because she's become a very familiar presence to us. Mm. You say at the end of that essay that we're all Barbara Cartland now. <laughs> yes. I, I would just rub myself a bath and inhabit that character. Do people remember Barbara Cartland, I wonder? Who remembers Barbara Cartland? Yes, lots of hands. Okay, very pink, very frilly. Used to say, I lie on the sofa and I pray to God to give me a plot. And those <laughs> prayers were never answered. <laughs> it, it was always the same plot. Uh, and you know who was a great reader of Barbara Cartland, allegedly, was Diana. And she thought she was living in a Barbara Cartland book, but she was living in a horror novel. Mm. And you write of her, her end, the, 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 the tunnel that, of course, was you know, Diana's last, her, her resting place, the, in that most feminine of cities, did you say, in Paris, that, but then her descent into darkness. It, it is, yes, it has a, a Stephen and King quality. Birth. Uh, she was reborn in a more numinous, long-lasting form. Her image became bigger than ever in mm. death. I, I think she'll never go away. Are you writing now? Yes. Um, I'm at the very tentative beginnings of a new novel, I hardly dare to breathe on it. It may not work. Um, if it doesn't work, I have other ideas. <laughs> um, for the next few months, the big work is going to be the play because mm. um, 
you know, a, a script is only the beginning. I'll be there in the rehearsal room. This will occupy me for a while. I'm also working on a collaboration, which is something quite unique. Um, again, with Ben Miles and his brother, George Miles, who is a photographer by profession, we are making a thing called the Wolf Hall Picture Book, <laughs> which is uh, seven years of work. We've been going around visiting places that were important in Cromwell's life or important in the story. And we've been photographing them, not like heritage photographs for a postcard or a history book, but focusing on them as they are today in all their eroded imperfection mm -hmm. and with all the... Um, appurtenances of modern life, you know, the, the car parks, the litter bins, the fire extinguishers, <laughs> the electrical glorious. wiring. Uh, we're interested in the past and present rubbing up against each other, striking sparks. So we've been working on this for seven years. We've got our pictures. We're matching to the pictures. Text from the books... Or actually, in some cases, texts that didn't make it into the books, the, the off-cuts. Um, believe it or not, huge as these books are, <laughs> there are unwritten books. <laughs> I, almost I do big. believe. So that's the Wolf Hall picture book. Hilary, may, may, may the permutations of, of Wolf Hall continue to, to multiply. May they, may they fill our lives forever. Thank you so much for writing those books and for your criticism, for your memoir, for your other novels, uh, an adornment to the language on the page. Ladies and gentlemen, Dame Hilary Mantel. Thank you. What a pleasure to see a live audience. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.